everyone. It's Lynn Davison here to welcome anyone who's joining us. I want to make sure that everyone um, <clears throat> feels welcome. And I'm trying to figure out some of my tech here. So don't mind me while I look around. I need to see, I need to see the chat and I don't see it. So help me. Oh, there it is. Okay, there we go. All righty. So when you join us, please let us know your name and where you're from so that James has an idea of what states are represented here. Um, he does have great awareness of what's happening in the states in the Northeast and actually some also um, helpful insights on what's happening around the country. So, um, you know, please, please let us know and you're welcome here. I'm here about 12 minutes early just to make sure that if anyone comes early that um, that they know that they're in the right place. Also, I wanted to make sure that you visit my blog for a transcript of the session today so that in case you aren't able to watch the whole thing, you're um, able to get the information from the transcript. And I'll do my best to highlight the important parts so that you can scan it and see the, you know, the bigger fonts that kind of help you navigate, you know, what might be interesting to you. Also, I encourage you to visit, um, to, to actually search for James Tra Trailer at YouTube, as you will see that he has given a presentation just this March on the benefits that is incredibly detailed. So the federal and the state level benefits that's incredibly well um, explained. It's the first place I've ever been able to find it all in one place. So if you do get a chance to visit, um, to go to YouTube and watch that video, I think you'll be surprised at some of the insights that James provides. I, I always learn something when I talk to him. Let me give you one example. We were recently talking about how we were gonna, we're planning to fund the special needs trust that we want to allocate to our um, our young adults special supplemental needs trusts. And of course, I learned that when you put your funds, your IRA funds into your special needs trust, it the federal government actually taxes that as if it were a trust. So the income taxes on any withdrawals that come from an IRA in a special needs trust are usually taxed the federal level at around 40 something percent. And then of course there are state taxes as well, depending on where you live, there could be. So I was astounded by that and realized that that would mean that, you know, nearly half of what is in the IRA would go back, would, you know, go to pay the taxes on to the federal government and the state governments because they haven't, that's non-taxed money that's in that IRA. But I thought there has to be a smarter way to do this. And so um, we learned, you know, James helped me figure out that the best thing to do is to leave that to the other children who do, who can withdraw it over 10 years and pay their current levels of taxes, which is going to be significantly, significantly less likely than the you know 40 plus percent that a, a trust would be taxed. So that was very helpful to me to know. And so now we're thinking, okay, what's what are better ways to to fund the trust? Hi, James, can you hear me okay? 
I can. I'm just going to adjust my audio. Just give me one moment. Terrific. There we go. Can you... I can hear you perfectly. Is that coming in okay? Perfect. Yes. Yes. We are already live. I do that just so that if anybody joins us early, I can make sure that they know that they're in the right place. Great. And um, I think, you know, we have 40 something people registered, but it means, you know, about 40% of that will probably come. So, um, but I'm really hopeful that we'll get some good questions. I've already prepared a series for you. Great. So um, if, in case we don't get any, we're still going to get that information out there. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. I did take the time to transcribe the presentation <laughs> that you I did. I saw that. I hope. Did you do that by hand or was there a, was, oh my goodness. Well, thank were... goodness for otter, otter.ai. Yeah. And yeah. yes, I ordered it, but then you have to go back in and make sure, you yeah. know, that it's accurate. And then I added the, um, the titles in there to kind of separate out the contents. And what that okay. does is on my doc, I'm able to click on just the title. So it takes me right where I want to be in the document. Perfect. Yeah. So I'm really happy that um, you've presented that because now I feel uh, my feet are a little bit firmer on the ground <laughs> about you bet. all these various benefits. Um, it, it's kind of mind boggling. I do have a client right now that I'm working with in Georgia, trying to get her SNAP and another one in Florida trying to get her SNAP. And there's a real difference from state to state. There are, absolutely. So um, in Georgia, if you go to their gateway, they just allow you to upload your documents, but they don't upload theirs. So if somehow you got an, you know, uh, something in the mail and you didn't, yeah. maybe your kid opened it and threw it out or whatever, you don't even know what's been sent. Yeah. In contrast to Florida, where at least when you look on their website, you can click on the emails that they've got or the letters that have been sent. They don't send email. It doesn't, yeah. you can upload, but it's all paper in both of those states. So it's just interesting to notice the contrast between the way that the various states do it because they have free reign to do whatever they want. They do. They do. They have to follow the federal guidelines, but then they can, on an administrative standpoint, they're, they have kind of free reign. And I don't know if this is the case, but um, the, the one in Georgia was denied really quickly. So um, I think maybe they're being tracked by how quickly they turn around these cases. I don't know, because mm. they really didn't look at it very carefully. Okay. So, and then they said, you can always reapply. <laughs> which is of course what we did. So yeah. we went ahead and reapplied and uploaded the documents again. And um, because what they did was they scheduled the confirmation call um, before she received the paper letter. It's a very common complaint from clients. Yep. Yeah. So uh, social security is notorious for that, or it shows up in the mail and you have a call. You had a call that morning. Uh, yeah. They had scheduled for you. It's yeah. like, whoa, what's going on here? So, yeah, it's um, so it's it's good for me to see this the experience that my clients are having, so that I can help better, you know. You but of course, every state is going to be different, and I have clients all over the country. So, 
that's why you know on the on the local benefits we just specialize in new york because it's too hard and you know there's some exceptions and we'll we'll you know if we have a client that lived in new york and then moved to florida we'll we'll stay with them but it is um i think it it creates a real public policy problem because you know, logical people are like, let's create some type of forum or, or some platform for someone moving between states to consider what's what's in Alabama versus Mississippi versus New York. And it's it's almost too big of a lift um, to, to build something like that, because not only do you have different interpretation of the federal regulations, but then you have the legislative mm-hmm. um, kind of I don't even know what to call it, you know, the posturing or positioning. So you get a, you get a predominantly Republican legislature come in that takes a different position than the previous democratic, you know, legislation. And suddenly through executive decrees, they're changing benefits. Like the Biden administration was able to change the snap rules without going to the Senate or Congress because they were administering their, you know, their, the executive branch can, you know, can enforce the laws and they, took it upon as an executive privilege to enhance the, the this COVID allowance. Um, that's so, so it's, it's a, it's a interesting place to hang your hat because it's yeah. lots of reading. That's for sure. Oh yes. Well, you told me how many pages is the social security? I think the field manual is up to 50,000 for social security now. Um, and then, you know, in a state like New York, our Medicaid field manuals, over 400 something pages, and that's just the manual. Then what happens is there's all of what are called these administrative directives, which are specific either policy updates or administrative changes that then either um, counteract or or uh, or change the actual manual. So it, it's it's crazy. So you'll read a paragraph, and then it'll say, "We'll reference this this." link you click that link and it says disregard that previous paragraph <laughs> and you you like you almost have to draw a map of okay if this it's like a choose your own adventure book <laughs> yeah. um yeah it's it's uh and it's so it's no wonder that you get really educated capable parents you know like yourself that get really frustrated and they say i don't want to deal with these benefits because you know, I, this doesn't make sense to me. And then if you take a young person with autism and you throw them into this, you know, this bureaucratic space, you know, all it takes is, you know, the snap people will say, well, well, okay, James, how many people live in your house? Well, well, four, you know, well, we define house by the person buying and buying food. So therefore it's one. So if I'm a rational, literal person, now I'm fearful. Am I committing fraud? Am I going to go to jail? I'm, right. You know, it's 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 um, it's just really, really unfortunate. It really is unfortunate. Yeah. And then there's um, and then we we've got two more minutes and we can get started. But then there's also the misinformation. So, oh, and the people that put the fear of God in anyone that has gotten social security benefits. I have yeah. a mom whose son is trying to do something from home. He's trying to build a business from home. It's very, um, you know, it's really his passion. It's like mm-hmm. the one area that he's willing to, to take some risks and get out there and do yeah. it. I'm really exciting for us. And yet, um, you know, the mom's been told, don't let him make any money at all. Uh, you know. Well, well, hopefully we can talk about that because that's definitely bad information. 
Yes, yes. And and I have done the cal- I've since you gave me the red book and I've looked through it and we we did the calculations together. I'm able to show her exactly how it all works. And you know, but still there's still that niggling, you know, anxiety around the yeah. whole yeah. So. Well, also with with self-employment, there are slightly different rules. And then they look at the net countable income, not gross income, the well, way they do sense. with W-2. Yeah. yeah. But then that creates this situation where if you're still reporting the wages, you 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 know, there's there's a big adjustment at the end of the year because you don't necessarily know what your net income is going to be right. until the end of the year. So Social Security needs to code that person as self-employed in their system. And there's a big true up. So sometimes what'll happen is if someone's net income was less and they get greater SSI benefit and they can get a retroactive check back to the first of the year. And if it's more, they may actually be in a position where they have to pay a little bit. So, um, so many rules. (laughs) Oh, it's so good to have you just even give me that context. I really, you know, and, and then the other thing I hear is wow, it's so expensive to hire that guy. And I, I try to remind them that the first year, just the SNAP benefits alone are worth it. Yeah. So it's, you know, it, and I think, you know, I think that's, it's definitely true. Um, You know, we, it's taken so long to get this information that if we were to, you know, then, you know, try to give it away one, it creates more work because it's so technical that uh, when I give presentations, inevitably people, you know, will, will say, oh, okay, I get it. I'll do it myself. And then they come back months later because they didn't, you know, they took information out of context and now it, it's more work. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, un, it's unfortunate, but my staff gets very upset if I don't pay their salary. Yes, I know. <laughs> I, get it. I get that totally. So it is um, time okay. for- and I just want to welcome Tomas and S and Luella and Sharon and Susan. Um, we are really happy that you're here. And I just want you to, if you could just put in the chat what your name is and or, well, we know your name, but where are you from? Just so James has a good idea of what states are represented here so that we can um, address some of the state level benefits. So I just want to this off by saying, would you like to know that your autistic young adult has a strong financial foundation built that fuels the life they love in the unlikely event of a catastrophic event in the next five years? If you're answering yes, I have great news because that is exactly what we are here to discuss. My name is Lynn C., as in Coach Davison. I'm the creator of the Art of Adulting course, coaching, and community. We have six adult children Several are autistic and all are alternative learners. I also offer ways to our ways to address all all our struggles live every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday at 11 at the Art of Adulting Facebook group. And most importantly, I'm the curator of amazing and insightful guests that I bring to you to help our autistic young adults and our families systemize adulting together. You're in for a special treat today. James Trailer is the founder and CEO of Upstate Special Needs Planning. And when you hear his story, you'll understand why being a chartered special needs consultant is his life's work. James's younger sister has an intellectual disability, so he knows all about how to fund this type of care. 
He's also the former chair of New York State's Developmental Disability Planning Council. That doesn't mean he just knows New York State. Believe me, he also knows the federal benefits. So here is James Trailer, CEO and president of Upstate Special Needs Planning. Well, thank you very much, Lynn. I appreciate the opportunity. You are so welcome. So let's go ahead. Oh, there's Monica as well. Thanks for joining us. Um, please just make sure that you post any questions that you have in the chat. We've got um, someone here from Ontario County, which is nearby, someone from Georgia, Maryland, and Phoenix, Arizona. Okay. So we've got quite, uh, quite a, a, a bunch of people. So I'm just going to kick it off with what are the federal benefits that could support my autistic young adults independence? Yeah, so I think when you look at the benefits landscape, especially with this kind of cohort from you know multiple states, um, you have to look at uh, really the the federal side um, and then the state side. So we'll start with with federal. So so the main um, the main platform for an individual living with autism where, where they may be able to access benefits is through United States Social Security system. So if, if someone is an individual that their autism presents itself in such a way that it impacts their ability to maintain competitive employment. And the difficult thing with that is autism, as everyone knows, is a spectrum disorder. So you have individuals that are completely nonverbal, um, you know, have non-self-preserving behavior, all the way up to individuals that, um, you know, are, are absolutely capable of work and competitive employment, but just may need additional support. So in a presentation setting, it's very difficult to just say a young adult with autism, because I don't know where, where you're coming from. But Social Security looks at an individual and, and does their autism, does any comorbid diagnoses uh, impact their ability to work? So Social Security defines work as earning more than $1,350 of W-2 income per month or net income if you're self-employed. Now, there's lots of ways to go above that, but that's the, the threshold. And then they, so that's the income threshold, but then they follow that up with um, a, a medical test, which says, is the young adult with autism unable to perform the primary duties of an occupation due to their disability? And is that disability expected to last more than 13 months? Well, something like a you know, a diagnosis of autism is absolutely going to last more than 13 months, but you still have to prove it to Social Security. So there's two main Social Security benefits that an individual um, would be entitled to. One is for those that have not yet paid into the Social Security system via the FICA tax, and that is the Supplemental Security Income Program, or SSI. The second program that an individual would be eligible for is for those that have paid into the Social Security program uh, through the FICA tax, and that would be the Social Security Disability Insurance Program. So both SSI and SSDI use the exact same definition of disability, the exact same application process. It's just one is for those that don't have a work history and one is for those that do have a work history. And some of the things we see with young adults with autism is they may be in a position where they find this ideal um, work experience where there's lots of supports. You know, they get a great supervisor that understands their needs, understands, you know, maybe some of the, the quirky behaviors or 
uh, whatever, however their disability presents itself. Uh, and then maybe that, that supervisor leaves and then they get fired. Um, that can be a situation where um, an application for social security may be appropriate because if they struggle to then find competitive employment, while social security is not designed to be uh, something like unemployment, uh, if someone has a disability that is then preventing them from obtaining additional work, uh, it may be that social safety net that we're all hoping for that could provide a baseline while they're then going out and trying to find that next, uh, that next work that would be appropriate. So long-winded answer, but we've got SSI, SSDI. Um, if someone is eligible for SSI, then they're automatically eligible for the program called Medicaid. So Medicaid is very important because it could provide in all states, um, regardless of the political affiliations of that state, um, it provides health insurance. So many young adults that I deal with may not have a robust benefits package through an employer because maybe they're just working part-time and they're not able to get the full benefits. So Medicaid could be then their primary insurance. Medicaid is also the mechanism that many states, uh, so in looking at the group, uh, Maryland and Georgia, I'm not positive about Arizona, but Maryland and Georgia use Medicaid to fund specific programs for those with disabilities. So if you have a disability, but you don't have Medicaid, you may not be able to access some of those services because that's the mechanism that the state uses to then pay the pay the bills or pay the, 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 the job coach or pay the supported housing company or whatever it may be. So federal benefits so far, SSI, SSDI, Medicaid. The last two that I'll briefly touch on, uh, one is a benefit that provides a, a food subsidy called SNAP, the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program. SNAP is a federal benefit, but as Lynn and I were talking about earlier, um, it's administered at the state level. And each state has a slightly different interpretation of the rules. Some states use assets as a consideration. States like where Lynn and I live in New York, they don't look at assets. Um, the SNAP program is used uh, by an individual with a disability or others that are um, simply have maybe have lost income or been laid off and have a family, different cohorts. But for individuals with a disability, it's used to buy food. Um, so it would be uh, fresh produce, canned goods, frozen goods. Um, the government just does not pay for uh, hot prepared foods um, or things that are non-food items that you may buy at a grocery store like toilet paper or mouthwash or, or a toothbrush. Um, so SNAP. Uh, and then we have HEAP. So HEAP is the Home Energy Assistance Program. You may not have the same pro problem in Phoenix or Georgia, but up in, in New York, it gets really cold. And so right around November, um, there is an allotment of HEAP dollars, which if the young adult with autism has a heating bill in their name, they can get a credit on their bill uh, and that will offset um, you know, the cost moving forward. I believe some of the Southern states, which it's the other way around, also have a program in the, the summer months when um, you know, they're to, to maybe offset an electrical charge if they're running, uh, they're running AC all the time. So I'll stop there because that was that was a lot really quickly and we're just on question one. So in summary, SSI for those social security benefit for those that don't have a work history, SSDI 
Social Security benefit for those that do have a work history, both of those use the same definition of disability. We have then Medicaid. Medicaid is connected to SSI. So if you're eligible for $1 of SSI, you're automatically eligible for Medicaid. It is possible to still qualify for Medicaid, but it's, it's then through your specific state if you're not on SSI. Uh, then we have SNAP, which is a, the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program. Then we have HEAP, uh, which could help someone pay utility bills. Those are going to be common benefits that exist in all 50 states uh, because they are federal. While some are administered locally or at the state level, those are federal benefits. So whether you're in Georgia, Phoenix, uh, you know, or Ontario County here in New York, you, you would, uh, your young adult may be eligible for those benefits. And that's, those are wonderful because that starts to build that financial foundation underneath our kids. Like if something did happen tomorrow, where would they be? Um, and it's nice to know that they're going to be able to eat. Um, and so I found that that process was not as difficult to navigate as SSDI was for our family, which we did not qualify for. So um, I would suggest... And and when you, at least in our state, when you qualify for SNAP, it seems like HEAP is just added. So we, yeah. we got two for one when we did that. So I think it's really worth um, going to your, just Googling SNAP in the state and you'll get to the, the website where you have to um, apply. And remember what James said earlier, that a household is that person, not everybody living in the home. So yeah. that's yeah, so critical the, to know. The federal definition of household, and I realize this isn't very logical, but they, they say a household is considered to be someone, um, regardless of the number of people living there, that is contributing towards household expenses and or buying food. So by that limited definition, if I had my sister living with me, my wife, my son, and I would be one household and she would be a separate household. So if she applied for SNAP benefits, she would indicate there was only one person living in the household because she was contributing towards her own food and paying me, me rent. Um, and so that, that is a federal definition of household. So that's important. The only other point to make is what, uh, in, in New York and many other states, if regardless of the household dynamic, if someone is approved for SSI, there's a box on the SSI application where you can check, are you interested in SNAP benefits? Oh. So if you get approved for SSI, you can check that box prior to the approval and automatically get enrolled in SNAP. If you don't do that and you're between the ages of 18 and 22, okay. um, different states sometimes consider Regardless of the household definition, they, they still consider that young adult with autism to be in the greater household. So it may be that your young adult has to be 22 or older to get SNAP in your state. So that information should be on your, um, you know, the local department of social services or disability services or temporary assistance. Each state has a slightly different way of how they provide supports to people with disabilities. But, but if you were to Google <laughs> SNAP, and then your state, uh, they should have uh, some easy to understand definitions and then age restrictions. Um, but but for but the if you're again approved at for SSI, 
18 and older, you SNAP can be automatic. Okay, we have two questions. Do the, does the autistic young adult have to be paying rent in the household? Great, great question. So I'm going to rephrase that question, S. So um, in both uh, for SNAP, HEAP, and SSI, the young adult would need to pay rent. They don't have to pay market rent. You know, we have clients that live in Manhattan. They, their, their rent is 5000 a month. <laughs> uh, it's not possible for their young adult with autism to pay 5000 a month on, on their, their income. So, so if they're eligible for SSI, even if the family rent is 5000 a month, the young adult may only be paying 400 a month or 350 or 550 a month. But they do need to pay rent. And the reason for that, from a SNAP, HEAP, and SSI standpoint, is if they're not contributing towards household expenses, then Social Security or the, the Department of Social Services views all of their remaining income as theoretically available for food. Um, so if there's no rent, then they could spend all their money on groceries, and therefore they don't need a SNAP benefit. So by simply having a housing expense between say a young adult and their parents, that money is transferred from the young adult to the parent. And then from there, as soon as the parent takes collective receipt of that money, they can do whatever they want with it. So many of our clients turn around and save it for that young adult, or they turn around and use it to help that young person with autism pay other bills. Because think about it from the sense of if they rented from me, if I'm a private landlord, no one can tell me what to do with my rent. Right. Um, so you just happen to be maybe a family member and the landlord. So long story short, yes, they need to be paying rent. And while I can't give tax advice in this setting or ever, because I'm not a CPA, um, the IRS does have a position where if you're living with an immediate family member and they're paying you rent, it's not actually rent. It's considered to be um, sharing in the household expenses. So it's a oh. non-taxable event. It's a non-taxable event. Good. good to know. Good yeah. to okay. Now, if you owned a separate property and were renting that to your child, that's rent. <laughs> but if it's in your home, mm -hmm. not considered rent. Um, are these statements true for SSD also? So Tomas, um, so with SSD, SSD is not financially means tested. So said another way, um, you know, uh, Elon Musk, <laughs> richest man in the world, if he was permanently disabled because he got in a wreck in one of his rocket ships or Teslas for that matter, which I think in Phoenix, they're driving around without drivers. I saw an NPR, which is a little, little scary, but, um, but at any rate, uh, Elon Musk could apply for social security disability, even with all the money in the world. Because it's simply, is, is, he, is he or is your young adult able to, um, to work? And do they meet the definition of disability? So there is no financial means test at all for the SSD benefit. It's simply, do they meet the definition of disability for, for Social Security? Okay. So um, if, you have an, if you want to expand upon that question, I'm happy to, to answer that. But, but the SSD rules are, are just slightly different. Um, and then there was a question, what if the Medicaid person is an elder adult? 
So uh, S, um, there are different types of Medicaid. Let me just check. I think you were the one that was in Ontario County. So in New York, there are different types of Medicaid. So there's Medicaid for those that are below the federal poverty level. There's Medicaid for those with an intellectual or developmental disability, or there's Medicaid that is there for those that need home care in order to live safely in a home and, and avoid a nursing home. And then there's Medicaid that funds nursing homes. So unfortunately, when you use the term Medicaid, I'd need you to be a little bit more specific um, because there are all those different Medicaid programs out there and I'd need to know which one you're referring to. Wow, it sure gets complex, doesn't it? Does. <laughs> Quickly, home care is the reason. Okay, okay. so for Medicaid home care, um, the individual, if it's, if it's an elderly adult and they're unmarried um, or they're living with you, they are also considered their own household. Um, so for SNAP, for HEAP, for Medicaid, your income, your assets can be excluded, um, even if they're living in, in your home. Good to know. Good to know. Okay. So the next question then is, which benefit is my autistic young adult most likely to get? Not easy to... Not, <laughs> not an easy question. <laughs> so yeah. so if we, if we kind of go back down that list and we start with Social Security, I think one of the things with autism is, and this is, I'm again, in a seminar format, I'm going to be very broad, but, you know, autism is just part of the human condition. So sometimes, and, and it's not necessarily something that presents itself as a chronic illness, right? So you may have autism and have great blood pressure, cholesterol, you may, may or may not have anxiety. Um, and so what Social Security is going to look at is, is what is documented in either a school record, a psychological record, or a medical record about that autism diagnosis that impacts someone's ability to work. And one of the reasons we find a young adult with autism may be denied for Social Security is after getting perhaps an initial diagnosis, they haven't been sick. So there's nothing, there's nothing in a medical record that says their disability prevents them from working. So upon examination of a social security caseworker, they say, oh, okay, James has an autism diagnosis, but that's all I see in the file. So they, he graduated high school or he graduated community college or he graduated college. So I don't see anything in the medical record that says he can't work. He graduated with a degree. Don't see why he can't work. I'm going to deny Social Security because I think he can work because there's nothing that I'm reading in this case file that speaks otherwise. So I think one of the things, you know, spinning this question around is if someone, because of their autism, because of sometimes the executive functioning delays or the challenges in those interpersonal relationships or dealing with confrontation at work or all, all the things I see out there that maybe prevent competitive employment. If that in fact exists, there just needs to be a record. So if it's not in the medical record, because those aren't necessarily medical things, 
then perhaps the individual had a job coach or, or, um, or, or accessed career counseling and they did a career profile and, and, an, and a, uh, a career administrator or job coach produced a report that said, you know, James really struggles with nonverbal communication and it's led to outbursts and, he's, and, and his autism is impacting his ability to work. That is critical data that then social security or one of these systems would rely upon to then potentially uh, make someone eligible for a social security benefit. So, um, so again, spinning the question around, we have lots of clients that are living with autism that are, that I hate the term, but higher functioning, capable of, you know, work and independent living that are also eligible for social security simply because there's enough data to support social security approving that benefit. Um, with SNAP, with, uh, because SSI and SSD use the same definition. So there's no difference between the two. With SNAP, there's oftentimes a much more liberal definition of disability. Um, and it's also possible to get SNAP purely on an income basis, depending on your state. Because you know, when I look at who are the number one recipients of SNAP in this country, single mothers, it's the elderly that don't necessarily have a disability, they may just be, you know, due to COVID, they had to choose between their career and their children. You know, it's an impossible choice. So there are people that are getting SNAP that in fact don't have a disability. So it can still be purely income-based. Um, so that opens up the door, whereas SSI and SSD, you have to not only, uh, you have to meet the definition of disability. So Susan had a question here. My son has HF high-function autism and got SSI starting at age 20. He got a job through an autism hiring program, works part-time since August. He makes about $1,600 per month. He no longer gets money from SSI, but does he get Medicaid? It does. Um, okay, so that's a great question, Susan. Let me check back. What state were you in? Susan was in Maryland. Maryland. So this is from memory, Susan, but I believe there is um, 1619B of the Social Security Act says if you lose SSI by virtue of earnings and just earnings and your disability doesn't change, you can have a continuation of Medicaid benefits after losing the SSI um, as long as you continue to follow the SSI budgeting rules, which as you remember, were keeping your assets under $2,000. So that is a basically what happens is Social Security reduces the benefit that your your son is getting to zero, but they leave the case file open. So by leaving it open, they maintain the Medicaid eligibility, even though the benefit has been reduced to zero. Um, so so that's one thing. The other thing is Maryland, I believe, also has. A medic, an expanded Medicaid program for working persons with disabilities. So if he, if he met the definition of disability through Social Security, which he did, but is now working and no longer gets SSI, even if he did go over the $2,000 limit, I believe, you'd need to verify this, but I believe there's a continuation of Medicaid through the state. And um, I am happy if, if Lynn, if you remind me, I know exactly where to look on the Social Security Field Manual to confirm that for Susan, 
But I'm hopeful one of those two ways, either at the federal level or at the state level, your son should be able to maintain Medicaid because at one point he was disabled in the in the view of Social Security, even though he's now capable of earning the 1600 a month, which is great. This is a great, you want to lose Social Security because you're, you're working. That's, that's an ideal situation, but obviously we don't want to lose the Medicaid because it's health insurance yeah. and it's, it's very important. Yes. Yes. Working people's with disability is what they call it in, in New York. Yeah. State. And again, that's one of those tricky things. Different states have different income rules, uh, asset rules, but I'm almost positive Maryland has uh, an expanded Medicaid program and, and you'd be able to continue that coverage even if you lost SSI. So great question. Let's say he did, he was a very frugal person and he has more than, or he's getting close to that $2,000 limit. Yeah. Is there a place where he should put that? Like, could he put it in an ABLE account? He absolutely could. So um, great, great statement there, Lynn. So, um, so, uh, uh, so oh, I'm sorry. So I'll answer this question. I'll come back to you as, um, so under the Obama administration, we had an expansion on the 529 college savings program. So it's IRS section 529A, the Stephen Beck ABLE program. So ABLE stands for Achieving a Better Life Experience, kind of a cheesy name, but that it's Congress. Um, so what it is, is it allows, uh, Susan, in your situation, it allows your son to save assets above the $2,000 limit. He can control those assets, or you can potentially be added as a, a co-account holder, depending on which state you set it up in. Maryland has an ABLE account, so does New York. So, you know, I think it's 47 states now have ABLE programs. Um, the money that it, your, your son saves does not count towards the $2,000 limit, and he can then use it for virtually anything, housing, food, utility bills, transportation, clothing, recreation, computers, coffee, headsets, glasses, you, you, you know, just about everything. So um, it, it, it's a great tool that may be appropriate if your son is in that weird place where working, wants to keep benefits, but can't accumulate a ton of money, he, can, he could use the, the ABLE program. And then um, if he's not getting SSI anymore, he can actually go over $100,000 without fear of, of losing any, any benefits inside that, uh, that account. So pretty cool. Um, so I'll answer S's question. So the Medicaid asset level is higher, but because of SSI eligibility, S is stay below 2K. So S, that's right. So if you're, if you're on SSI, you're automatically eligible for Medicaid. But it is possible to not be on SSI and still be eligible for Medicaid. So Medicaid, depending on which state you're in, can have different asset limits. So states like Florida, it's 2000. Um, other states like New York and, and um, I believe Maryland, you're allowed to have a little bit more. So, so in New York, it's $16,800. If you're not on SSI, you're not working and you're on Medicaid. If you are working, you can have $20,000 in your name uh, you can have a retirement plan, you can have an ABLE account, you can have all sorts of other things and keep your Medicaid. So it depends on what type of Medicaid you're getting in terms of what asset and income rules apply in your, your situation. Um, Susan, had a follow-up, if he keeps working, does he lose his eligibility for future SSI benefits if he's not able, if he's not able to continue to work? 
little bit of a tricky question. So at some point, and I don't know when this occurs, but at some point, if he's consistently been over substantial gainful activity, which is $1,350 per month gross, $1,350 gross per month without accommodations. So without getting too detailed, if he's got transportation costs to work or medical bills or a job coach, the cost of those things can be deducted from his wages to hypothetically or to artificially get him under 1350 a month. So let's just say though, he doesn't have any of that and he's making 1600. He does that for several years. At some point, he is likely to be terminated from SSI. If he loses his work within a five-year period after that termination, Social Security has a program called expedited reinstatement. What expedited reinstatement is, is if your disability has not changed, but your income now makes you eligible for Social Security, you can reapply directly through your local Social Security field office and call them up. It's usually better to call them up or show up now, now because you're allowed to meet at least in New York and, and most mid-Atlantic states like Maryland, you're, you can go in person again. Um, and you would request expedited reinstatement. So what that does is all you have to do is prove income, prove that you're still under a doctor's care um, and that nothing has changed medically. And so with something like autism, nothing has changed medically. And you immediately go back on SSI without having to do the full application again. If it's outside of five years, you'd have to reapply as if it was um, day one. However, if your son had, if his situation's changed, maybe anxiety has gone up or, or whatever, had he been working for that long, it's likely not going to be SSI that he's going to be eligible for now. It's going to be Social Security disability he's going to be eligible for now because he's paid enough FICA tax to become vested in that program. So fun stuff. Wow. It is a real labyrinth, isn't it? Oh, yep. my goodness. All right. So um, I heard growing up that it's not right to accept government benefits. What's the current thinking? You know, I'm really glad you asked that or you posed that question, Lynn, because this is something I hear all the time. And, and, and it usually comes from, from mothers. It's like mother's guilt. Um, <laughs> so here's my philosophy on this. Um, now, part of this is jaded because I live in New York in one of the highest tax states in the entire country. So <laughs> my philosophy is if you're going to pay taxes and you're going to choose to live in a high tax state, then if your family member is eligible for a benefit, you should take advantage of that benefit because it's not free. No. You're paying for it. Yes. And if you don't care about the benefits, there are states like Florida and Texas and Tennessee that have very low state income taxes as an incentive to attract citizens. But in exchange, they don't have the robust services that mm -hmm. high tax states do. So it's a choice. You know, do you live in a low tax state that doesn't provide a lot of benefits for individuals with disabilities? Or do you live in a high tax state that does provide those benefits, but you have to pay for those through tax revenues? So that's a, sometimes it's not explained in that manner, but that's really what's going on. Um, and it's at the heart of a lot of debate in our country about, you know, what role does the state play in providing supports for its citizens? And 
I'm not going to get into that debate, but it's just something that's, that's happening right now. So my philosophy is that none of these things are free. And there is absolutely no shame in accessing a benefit that was designed at the federal level and at the state and local level to support a young person with autism. That's why they have the benefits and other disabilities as well. Um, and it's not necessarily like you don't, you don't get a stamp on your forehead that says autism if you start getting social security, right? Or SNAP benefits. You know, there's no shame at all. We have clients that are among some of the wealthiest people in the entire world. You know, some of our New York City clients are very, very, very affluent. Now, they're the exception to most of our clients, but they have kids getting benefits, um, even though they have virtually unlimited resources. Now, there's different reasons for that, because many times, you know, you need the benefits to access certain programs in your community. And if you don't have them, they won't take, there is no mechanism to private pay. So that's why they, they do it, because it's not about the money for their situation. But for most people we work with, you know, I look at a family. And, you know, raising kids is hard. Lynn, I don't know how you, the number of children you have, like I can barely handle one. So <laughs> six, it like gives me anxiety, um, but, but it's, it's hard out there. It's expensive. And for some people, while their young adult is with them and they're supporting them, they're using their resources or you're using your resources to support your child, which you would do because it's your child. And I get it. But if we can take advantage of some of these supports, Maybe that creates a little bit of space financially for you to save more or, or catch up. You know, we have, we have oftentimes it falls on mothers that take a back seat in their career after the diagnosis of a child and had to exit the workforce or, or scale back or, or, or not take a promotion because they had to, to, to make sure that the advocacy was done for their child. And that's not fair. So, but it, but it's life and you do what you can for your kids. So, um, so sometimes accessing these benefits allows that mother to perhaps catch back up on savings or paying down debt or or maybe using that money and and giving it paying for a kid's college or or or, or you know using it with another child. It, it it's it's not that it it is this vacuum, but it it does create I think opportunity and there's no shame at all in accessing the benefits because that's really what they were designed to do. Yeah, very wise, persistent people before us put those in place. Can you imagine? The Social that? Security Act dates back to the Great Depression. Yeah. Okay, this is not a new revolutionary thing. And in that initial legislation, they had provisions for, they call it the mother's benefit. Mothers that had disabled children or, or, or were caring for a loved one. So the, even the, the, the architects, FDR, we're thinking about our families, you know, because they said, this isn't a choice to have autism. No one wakes up and says, sign me up. You know, that's what I want. Um, it is just, it, it's, it's life. And so as a society, as a modern society, we, regardless of your state, we have safety nets. You know, different states make it harder to access than others, but these are safety nets designed specifically for, for our, our, our people. Now, the question then is, is, do you meet the definitions to qualify, which is kind of a separate thing. But, but in terms of the, the philosophy, it's there to act as that safety net and allow kind of Susan's situation where her son's okay right now, 
but we all know how fragile employment can be with a young person with, with autism. So if it goes the wrong way, we've got a, we've got a tool to fall back on. And well, if you're not there, yeah. this is even more critical to fall back on something because you're not going to just be there to write a check for rent, right? Yeah, both my kids were laid off during COVID. And really their employer would have loved to have them but couldn't reemploy them until, you know, 18 months later. So if I, you know, if they hadn't been here, I don't, I mean, they ended up going to take classes at, at the local community college, but that wasn't employment. So I'm just glad that we had um, their insurance, health insurance covered, because that was so important. It's just so important as a risk tool for the parents. I mean, can you imagine saying, no, I'm not going to pay for that medical procedure? Of course, you're going to pay for that medical procedure if your child needs it, no matter what, it, you know, as much as you possibly can. But to have Medicaid in place says that risk is covered for me and in my family. And it, ma it really matters. So let me ask you, um, this next question is, how do I qualify my autistic young adults for the benefits they deserve? Then? Yeah. So I think, I think the first thing that you do is um, you look at, well, let me back up. I think you start with what are we trying to accomplish? So for... Or Susan, just picking on you, Susan, because you you shared some information. Susan, you know, pursued Social Security benefit when her child was, you know, un, you know, it looks like at age 20. So SSI eligibility, for example, at age 18 federally, the young adult with autism is no longer considered part of your household. So your family income and assets are not considered for purposes of Social Security. So they can apply on their own. So if they're either still in school or not working and the reason they're not working or the reason they're still in school because they have an autism diagnosis, I would strongly consider exploring if your child would be eligible for SSI. I think that's, that's a good benefit to start with because it opens up so many other doors, SNAP, potentially social security disability in the future, potentially benefits that are off of your record, as a parent, which we'll get into maybe if we've got time. Um, but in order to apply for SSI, you need to, you know, the reason sometimes people hear anecdotally that, oh, it takes three times to apply for Social Security before you get approved, mm -hmm. that's not true. What, what you need to, it, 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 there's a definition and you need to make sure your child meets the definition and that there is data that will help the social security officials determine if that young adult in fact meets the definition. So um, there's a resource that perhaps you can share, Lynn. And if you Google the social security blue book, oh, it's called the blue, it's called the blue book. It's, it exists digitally. So I don't think it's actually blue, but what it, what it is, is it's the definition of disability for each facet of the human condition. So you can go under autism, anxiety, you know, OCD, um, different, you know, back injuries, yeah, anything you want, and actually look at what the social security field officer is going to look at when determining whether or not your child meets the definition. Then you as a parent have a right to see um, your child's school records because they're going to consider that. Through a HIPAA release form, you could look at the medical records, 
if you're not a legal guardian of your child, you, you know, you'd get their permission to look at the medical records. If they've had job coaching through a school district or through a private agency, you can look up what uh, is in that record. And you just want to see, is there a paper trail that establishes inconsistent employment or the inability to maintain employment? You know, even if there, that doesn't exist, if someone has worked for two weeks, been let go, worked for two weeks, been let go, worked for two weeks, let go, that, that's relevant information. But what sometimes Social Security struggles with is there's nothing in a medical file that says the person can't work. They have a college degree. They haven't worked for four years. They're not seeing a mental health counselor. Social Security then says, well, is this a choice that this person is not working? Or does their disability prevent them from working? So you as a, a family can do a little bit of homework and determine what's in the record. And if, if, if that exists, then you can work with, whether it's someone like myself, um, many of the social services agencies in your community, um, there, are, there are many private organizations, social security attorneys, there's lots of different people that can help you with an application to increase the likelihood of success. Now, it doesn't guarantee success because, again, if, if I went in and applied for SSI, I would be denied because I don't meet the definition of disability and my, my resources are such that I have more than $2,000. So I would be denied. So we can't use this blanket statement that says, oh, don't apply because you'll be denied. We have lots of individuals that, that can access the benefit, but you, you just need to see what's in the record. If it's not in the record, because either the doctor was fearful of taking a position about employment, which is common. They don't want to, you know, no one wants to take a stance anymore. Everyone's like, oh, well, I don't know. You know, it, you, you need to be a little more of an advocate and say, look, I know you're not an employment counselor, but just from your perspective as a clinician, does anxiety that is so debilitating that my child can't get out of bed impact their ability to work? Oh, yes, it does. Great. Would you mind putting that in the file? <laughs> huge. That's a, that's a huge thing because the doctor may know it. You may know it. The young adult may know it. But if it doesn't live somewhere, Social Security is not going to know it. And they don't take anecdotal feedback from a mother or for a father. They need to see right. a medical record. So how do I qualify for you know benefits? Typically, our first point of entree is the Social Security Administration. Now, when you apply for SSI, you're simultaneously applying for Social Security Disability. So sometimes people immediately get a notice of denial for Social Security Disability and throw up their hands. We have to say, wait a second, has my child ever worked? Because if they've never worked, of course they're going to get denied for Social Security Disability because they don't have any work history. It, you, you require a, 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 a denial for disability in order to get than the SSI. So not a thing to be fearful of. So I, I realize this is you know, a very broad concept, but, but my recommendation would be if your child's not working, still in school, has a disability that, that you feel or they feel impacts their ability to maintain competitive employment, SSI is you know, the first path. If they're living independently but underemployed or over 22, because I can say that for all of this cohort, um, I would also consider looking at SNAP um, because I think, uh, you know, food is very expensive right now. And if your young adult is not earning a, a ton of money, um, 
but is still living with you or, or is living on their own, I, I would I would go after you know that food benefit, which then may also help them pay their utility bills. So those are the 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 kind of order. I'd start with Social Security, but in Susan's case, say where where your child's working, not eligible, uh, you could still likely get get SNAP as well. Great, great. This is um, so helpful to um, sort things out with this labyrinth that we find ourselves in. And this came up in my family recently. You know, I was explaining the benefits that we were applying for, and they said, "But, but, mom, I'm not that disabled." Yeah. Other people so that, have these, but not me. <laughs> we have, um, we have a uh, one of my. So she's a young woman with autism, um, and she. It's so funny because I won't. I, I didn't see her for a while because of COVID, and she goes. Uh, she goes, oh, James, uh, looks like you're wearing a bigger pant size. It's the first <laughs> thing she says to me. I'm like, Caitlin, not a hello, nothing, just that I'm fatter. Thank, thank you, um, honey. That, that's very nice. But um, she says the funniest thing. She says, James, I don't want to associate with those lower functioning people. Mm -hmm. Like she views herself as not having a disability at all. And on Social Security, you know, needs a lot of supports, but from her perspective, it's everyone else that has a disability. She doesn't have a disability. And I think from a perspective, that makes sense. So in this space, when talking about these things, I don't make it about the disability <laughs> at all. I make it about what the benefits do. So no one wants to be told that they can't work. But if they're not working, and their disability is preventing them from working. The fact of the matter is, is you are financially supporting them. So if anything, the way I would say it is, I'd say, you know, Lynn, we're going to be going after a benefit that will help you be in more control of your situation, help you pay rent and help you buy food. So it has nothing to do with autism. It has to do with independence and choices and empowerment. Um, and yes, do we have to deal with the government system to do it? Sure. That's one angle. Another angle is I don't shy away from talking about, you know, what would happen if something happened to mom and dad or mom and mom or dad and dad. And, you know, we say, you know, I need to put in place things that would help keep you safe or help you have options and afford to live independently. And I want you to work full time. But if that's something you struggle with, then we need to have something else in place to help you pay for some of these bills so that you have more choices. So it's about choices, because at the end of the day, if you don't have money, if you don't have health care, if you don't have money for food, if you don't have money for utilities, you're dependent on the goodwill of either systems or others. And when you don't pay for something, it devalues the relationship. You know, if you're just going to rely on your sibling and freeload, you put them in a situation where they may love you. It's not about love, but at the end of the day, you got to, you got to buy milk and eggs and fruit and, and, and produce. And if there's only so much money, then you're forcing that sibling to choose between their sibling and maybe themselves or their own family. And that creates conflict. So by having money in place, you remove some of that conflict and you preserve relationships. And I think if that's the vantage point you look at, that 
pride or I don't want to be looking, you know, appearing like anyone else starts going away. You know, the, the, the snap benefit, you know, with, with, you know, when, when we were with COVID, you know, six feet apart, you can't tell if I'm using a snap card yeah. or a credit card at the grocery store, you can't tell. So, and it looks like I'm using a gift card. And, and if I also bought, you know, batteries and a razor in addition to my produce, then I got to use another card too. But it literally looks like I'm using a $100 gift card. So there's no shame at all. And, and even with, with, some, with Snap, um, you can use Amazon Fresh and Whole Foods or, or all these delivers. And you can even do online grocery delivery with some of these things. So, so there's, it's not like the old days where there's food stamps and you're, you know, you drop the stamps in line and it's embarrassing. People are mad because you're holding things up. It's swipe, four digit pin, I'm off to the races. Or with SSI, the money's direct deposit into your bank account, and then you can pay rent, you can buy food. So there's no, there's no shame in any of this at all. And that's so reassuring and exactly what we do. Exactly what we do. So anyone who's, um, who has another question, please post it in the chat because we have time now for probably one or two more questions. Is there something, oh, I know what I was, it was something outside, it was about the able. Anyway, it'll come to me. But what else did we not cover that we, we sh oh, housing, that's, thank you, S, that was exactly it. Housing benefits, thank you. You just, yeah. what's going on there? Yeah, so um, a lot of investment by various states and the federal government uh, you know, housing is a real issue. It's an issue for folks without disabilities. You know, housing prices are through, I think there's now $27 trillion of home value in the U.S., which has priced out people that are on the lower end of the economic spectrum because there's just, there's no availability of housing. So when we look at what exists to help people with autism afford housing, first we have those benefits I mentioned earlier. SSI, primary benefit for, for SSI is, is to be used for food and housing. Social Security disability also could be used for housing, but there's no requirement that it be used for housing. In addition to that, there's the federal Section 8 or affordable housing programs, which are typically lottery-based. So they're federal vouchers that if you have a disability and your income is within range for your, it's usually 120% of the federal poverty level. So for an individual, I believe, well, they're going to update it, but I believe it's between 28 and 33,000 a year is the threshold. But again, that's subject to federal interpretation. But you can apply for a housing voucher. So the way that voucher works is through your local housing authority, and this, this applies in all 50 states, um, <clears throat> is that voucher, if it's granted to you, can then be used with an accepting landlord to pay up to two-thirds of the contract rent. So in a situation where there's a one-bedroom apartment that's $1,000 a month, I'm going to get you know over $600 paid through my voucher. And so I would then be responsible for the difference. So that's a program that by having that label of having a disability, whether it's through Social Security or through your state, or just you, you were able to get um, so Lynn, in your situation, you were able to get that designation of having a disability at the state level. Most other states have that ability too. So you can check a box that you have a disability and it puts you into a better, um, it has a, 
a better likelihood of getting that voucher because the federal government wants to target disenfranchised populations. So certain ethnicities, certain cohorts of like uh, veterans, uh, single mothers, um, uh, or single fathers for that matter, uh, and then people with disabilities. So certain housing units have, res have reserved apartments for um, Section 8 and or um, maybe they don't take Section 8 to S's point, but they have affordable housing earmarked for certain, certain groups. Uh, S, uh, the landlord depends on the state. The landlord in New York, for example, does not have to accept Section 8, but has to make that decision across the board. So they can't take Section 8 and then not take Section 8. They either do or they don't. Um, and that may change uh, in New York, but for now, they don't have to take it. But there are there are many, many providers that, that do. It's just, it does sometimes limit where you're able to live, just like affordability limits where you're able to live. So in addition to the Section 8 program, many states in general, the higher tax states, so Maryland's on the line, so Virginia, um, New Hampshire, Vermont, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, basically all of New England, um, also have state benefits to help individuals with disabilities afford market rate housing. So in New York, we have the New York State Office for Persons with Developmental Disabilities that will provide additional financial incentives to allow a person with autism, should they qualify, um, <coughs> you know, move into, uh, move into housing. So as said, uh, men want to purchase housing for a child. So the way you would do that, you could purchase the house, rent it back to your child. If your child had a Section 8 voucher, I believe you could accept the voucher. I don't believe there's a, a restriction on, in New York, that, that arrangement. But if it was a two-family, or sorry, two-bedroom, and you were rent, you know, you're renting to two bedrooms, you would then have to open up that other bedroom to someone else that has Section 8 as well. Um, so you just want to be a little, little careful. Um, if your child has OPWDD benefits, um, it's a little bit more flexible in that you could buy it. You could rent to them and set the rent at whatever you want and get two-thirds of the rent from OPWD. So sorry, that was a New York State-specific piece because I think S was from, from New York. Um, all right, Lynn, we're at 10.57, so I think, do I have one more question or? <laughs> you know, I hope so. Um, I, don't, I don't have one in my mind, but that is a concern about, you know, like, you know, when they're getting to the point where it's really time for them yeah. to tackle that, that they've learned about as much as they can at home, and it's time to navigate because, you know, we're not always going to be here. Yeah. So, so the idea would be that if we could purchase it and they could rent it back, that still makes it a little fuzzy in terms of, you know, how emphatic we are about things getting done and getting paid for. But um, it so sounds like it's the it's the most cost effective way to do it. Obviously, it depends on your area. Right. So if if you know, yep. the person in Maryland is in, you know, North Baltimore versus you know, versus, you know, Bethesda, very different very yeah. different areas, you know, New York City versus Rochester, right? right? There's there's big swings. But I think when I look at what are the things after we're gone that families are spending money on, it's housing, it's food, it's utilities, it's healthcare, 
It's staff and supervision. It's transportation. Those are the big, big items. It's not refrigerators or clothing or, you know, those big ticket items or, you know, a lot of our our kids don't have champagne tastes, right? They're pretty. They're very humble. Very humble, very simple. It's that if my sister makes a thousand dollars a month, she can't afford to live in Stonington, Connecticut, where she she lives because it it's not possible. That is yeah. so far below the poverty level. It's, it, it, there's not an apartment in the in the world that would rent to her. So she will always need housing to the extent she qualifies for a voucher or a subsidy. That's one option. In our situation, my mom purchased a small two bedroom, 900 square foot apartment, and she rents it to my sister. And when my mom is gone, that apartment comes into a trust that I oversee or I sell it inside the trust and I move her into one of my apartments in upstate New York. And that's what we're going to do. And, and it, it allows us to then eliminate one of the main variables, which is housing insecurity and always make sure that that young person has a safe, safe and affordable place to live. Um, so, uh, so I believe that's uh, 11 o'clock. It's been really fun. Lynn. Yes. Yes. So good. So good. I, I, the richness of the of the responses and the depth of your knowledge are so valuable and we're really happy that you were able to take the time to do this with us so i appreciate yeah, the opportunity signed up and i'm sure are going to watch the replay and i'll be um doing a transcript as well so we can um we can really mine this information for a long time well i'm glad thanks I, so much for having me yeah no really our pleasure thanks james All right. All right. Bye for now.